A man named Jack was walking along a steep cliff one day when he accidentally got too close to the edge and fell. On the way down, he grabbed a branch which temporarily stopped his fall. He looked down and to his horror saw that the canyon fell straight down for more than a thousand feet. He couldn't help hang on to the branch forever and there was no way for him to climb up the steep wall of the cliff. So Jack began yelling for help, hoping that someone passing by would hear him and lower a rope or something. Help! Help! Is anyone up there? Help! He yelled for a long time, but no one heard him. He was about to give up when he heard a voice. Jack! Jack! Can you hear me? Yes! Yes, I can hear you. I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but but who are you and where are you? I'm the Lord, Jack. And I'm everywhere. The Lord, you, you mean God? That's me. God, please help me. I promise if you'll get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a really good person. I'll serve you the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you off from there and then we can talk. Now here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do. Okay. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Just have faith in me and let go. It was a long silence. Finally, Jack yelled, help, help. Is anyone else up there? (laughs) Faith in God is often revealed by how we respond to what our circumstances are what we cannot see or understand. Turn with me to John chapter 4 as we continue our study in John's gospel and read a story about a man in a similar circumstance. A man who is a man without faith looking for God to intervene in what appears to be a very tragic circumstance. Look at John chapter 4 and let's Start in verse 43. After two days, he, speaking of Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir. Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. 
and he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea into Galilee. Last time we were in chapter 4, we studied the story of the woman at the well. Jesus was making his way from Jerusalem to Galilee, and he passed through Samaria. Samaria being an area of really unbelievers, pagan, pagan worshipers. Samarians were, in many respects, they were the antithesis of Judaism. They were the people that the Jews despised. They were the people that despised the Jews. And so there was this racial and ethnic hatred that was between these two groups. And as Jesus passes through Samaria, he encounters a woman at the well, Samaritan woman. And as we read last time, we saw this amazing impact Jesus had on this woman's life and how having a life of tragedy and sin, a life where she had had five, if not more, husbands. She had been an immoral woman. She had been an outcast. And she encounters Jesus. And in his mercy and his compassion, he reaches to her and touches her life in a miraculous way where she becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. So now after a two-day stay, the town that had come out from from Sychar, the Samaritan town. Jesus stayed with them two days, shares the gospel with them. That town gets saved. But then it's time to move on. His time in Samaria is finished. And in 4.3, we knew that he had, he had left. Now he's coming to Cana, Galilee, in, in, in Galilee, a second time. If you remember back in chapter 2, this is where Jesus really began his ministry. He's in Cana. He's at a wedding. It's most likely a family wedding. And they run out of wine. And his mother turns to him and asks them, you know, son, do something. And he does. He does something. He miraculously turns water into wine. And this is where Jesus' first miracle takes place. And this miracle had a profound effect upon his disciples. In verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. There are many similarities in this story that we just read in Cana. To the story that we earlier read in Cana at the wedding. Both take place in Cana. Both have Jesus rebuking an individual. Both miracles occur as Jesus just speaks a word. Both have servants who experience the miracles first. And both miracles end with people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 43, as John relates this account to us, he he gives it an interesting twist. Jesus himself comments that he is not welcome in his own hometown. And yet at the same time, he is being welcomed. Verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus was from Nazareth, which was in Galilee. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, is that a contradiction? What's going on here? John's making a very important and I think a very insightful point for his readers, for us, that we might understand what's happening to Jesus as he is in Cana. 
Many Jews had been at the Jerusalem feast. If you could look further down in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. These folks in Galilee, these folks in Cana, had seen Jesus in Jerusalem during the Passover, and they had seen the many signs and wonders he had performed there. And so when he comes to Galilee, he's not welcomed for who he is, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's what he means by a prophet not having honor in his own home. But he is welcomed because he does stuff. He is welcomed because he performs miracles. And if, if you were a Galilean, you'd want to see some miracles. You'd want to see something happen. Oh yeah, they welcome him, but not because of who he is, but because of how he performs. And as we read further in John's gospel, as we move from chapter 4 into 5, 6, 7, and 8, until we get to chapter 12, and these, these, this area from uh, chapter 2 through 12 is known as the book of signs, we see signs occurring. But as each sign occurs, this prophet, this Jesus, isn't honored. Actually, the hatred for him grows and grows and grows, and he becomes more persecuted as time goes on. And that's what is happening here. That's what Jesus is referring to. D.A. Carson speaks of this passage. He says, in Samaria, Jesus had enjoyed his first unqualified, unopposed, and open-hearted success. The woman at the well had come to faith. Now he returns to his own people. And consistent with the pattern developed so far, at this point, the response at best is ambiguous. It's like, who is this guy? But he does stuff. And we want to see some of that stuff. But as we, as we read at the very beginning in our prologue, when we started in John chapter 1, as we read in verse 11, eventually this is where Jesus goes. It says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. That is the end game for Jesus. That is where He is headed, even amidst all the miracles. His own does not Receive them. This book of signs, this, these 12 chapters that we're reading, they're meant to show us the way to who Jesus is. But people want the signs, but they don't want the one who is performing the signs. That is, that is what John is trying to communicate to us. He chronicles that these people are looking at all these signs that are pointing to Jesus, but they don't see that. If I drive south on Interstate 85, which I do from time to time, going from here to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I see a sign that says Charlotte, 50 miles away, and I don't stop at the, I stop at the sign and I take out my suitcase and I sit down and say, here I am, I'm arrived, I'm, I'm in Charlotte. Well, of course not. That's just the sign. It's, it's intended to point me in the right direction. The signpost is not the destination. The signs that Jesus performed are not the destination. Jesus is the destination. That's what John is after here. 
And John includes the story of the woman at the well prior to this story earlier in this chapter because he wants to show his readers the receptivity of the Samaritans. A group of people that should have rejected Jesus accepts him and the people who should accept him instead reject him, which is the Jewish people. Again, D.A. Carson says he may have been popular in Samaria, but he presses on to his own homeland where public sentiment will finally take him to Calvary. He presses on and public sentiment finally takes him to Calvary. The Galileans only saw signposts. The Jews in Galilee, all they saw were the signs. That's all they wanted to see. And so they welcomed him simply because of the signs and wonders he did in Jerusalem. And most likely the, at the wedding. Because they would have been around at the wedding. They saw signs and wonders. That's all they saw. The Samaritans saw a Messiah. The Jews just saw miracles. Now, thankfully, even though that is all they see, their attitudes and reactions do not deter Jesus from going to Cana. As our loving Savior, Scripture teaches, he came to seek and save the lost. He went into Galilee not because he would be well-received, but exactly because of the opposite. Jesus went to Galilee because they needed the gospel. They needed him. Those who are sick, Scripture says, need a doctor. And Jesus is the great physician. It was the need of men and women who were lost in sin, who were hopeless, fearful, anxious, painful, living lives that were broken, that moved Jesus to go to Galilee. And he's still doing the same today. These people didn't know that their lives were broken. You know, we live in a society today, you just have to listen to the news long enough to hear our healthcare system is broken. Our government is broken. Our VA is broken. Our world is broken. Everything is broken. Time and time again, you just hear everything is broken. And people time and time again, are trying to fix it. The problem is they can't fix it because what's really broken is them. They're broken. And broken people trying to fix a broken world is only going to create more brokenness. And that's why Jesus came. Because Jesus takes those who are broken and he heals them. He takes those who are dead and he brings them to life. He takes the brokenhearted. And let me, let me appeal and let me encourage you today. If you're not sure about your faith in God, your relationship with God, if you're not sure, if you're one who just follows God from a distance or you know God as the as the scriptures teach. If maybe your life is broken in some regard or fashion, and as scripture does teach, you are broken within. Today is as good a day as any to trust in Christ.
Today is as good a day as any to be assured that you are one of God's children. Today is as good a day as any to move from brokenness to healing by putting your faith in Christ. And that's what this story is about. This story is about primarily a loving and compassionate God and how that love and compassion are displayed to a broken humanity. And specifically to a man and his son. And even as we read on in this story and you locate Jesus in the story because that's primarily who the story is about and his compassion and his power and his mercy and his love. I want you to locate yourself. I want you to locate you in the story. Because in this story there is a man and there is a boy And both are broken. And that represents us. True faith is what this story is about. True faith is believing that we have been created by God. For God. That we might live for Him and not for ourselves. Let me say that again. True faith, which is the title of this message. True faith, happy Chris. True faith is believing that we have been created by God for God, that we might live for Him and not for ourselves. And just two, two points this morning. The, the two points are the nature of false faith and the nature of true faith. The nature of false, false faith. Now John shows us in this passage a vivid example of false faith. Yes, these people believed in the miracles that Jesus performed, but that's all they believed in. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he made the water wine. There is a miracle already. John is recounting this miracle. He's recounting the first sign and he's reminding the readers, yes, this is who Jesus is. He is the miracle worker, but it is who he is. And in that story, if you remember, it was about Jesus being revealed as the Son of God, the Messiah. And, and at Capernaum, Capernaum is a town about 25 miles away from Cana. There was an official whose son was ill. So we, we get this understanding that this young boy, this young man is sick. He is ill. But we learn more a little bit later. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son because he was more than ill for he was at the point of death. This nobleman was likely a part of Herod Antipas, the, the governor of Galilee, of his court. He would be a wealthy man. And he came from quite a distance away. Capernaum was about 25 miles. It was anywhere from a four to six hour ride by horse. And he came to plead for his son's life. His son is dying. There's no no doubt that he is aware because as as an official in this area, there's no doubt this nobleman would be aware that Jesus performed miracles. He would have heard about the the miracle at the wedding. He would have heard about the miracles and signs and wonders Jesus performed at Jerusalem because many of the Galileans had gone to the Passover feast and had come back. And so this nobleman would be aware. 
And so he comes. And, and in, this, in, in this translation, it says that he asks Jesus. He asked him to come down. Well, in the NASB, which is a literal Greek translation, it literally means he begs, he implores, he pleads with Jesus to come down. Ask is just not powerful enough. This man whose son is dying. And if you're a father or a mother and you have a child who is ill, you can only imagine what this man was feeling. He is pleading. He's imploring. He's begging Jesus. In fact, many translations actually use the word beg. He is begging Jesus to come down, to come to Capernaum and heal his son. And, and the Greek word son could actually be translated, my little lad. The affection this dad has for his son. My little lad is dying. Jesus, I have no hope. I have nowhere else to go. I've heard about you. You do signs. Would you come? Please, would you come? This boy of mine is almost dead. And regardless of his position as a nobleman, regardless of his stature and reputation, his deep affection for his son leads him to beg Jesus in front of a crowd of people that should be shocked that he was doing this. But all he thinks about is the healing of his boy. Now, again, no doubt this nobleman knew of Jesus' performance, turning water to wine and the stories he heard. And so he just wants Jesus to do what he's done for others. But John wants us to see something very important here. This man, understandably, comes in desperation. Who wouldn't? What parent wouldn't make the journey? What parent wouldn't travel across the country if their child was dying of a disease of cancer and go find the hospital in all the United States that is the best hospital and the best doctors? What parent wouldn't do that? And that's what this man is doing. But his mistake is that he did it with no thought of who Jesus is, just what Jesus does. And that's why we come to verse 40, 48, which to me is a stunning and shocking verse. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Back up for a second. Here is a man humbling himself, pleading and begging with Jesus to come and heal his son. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. He rebukes him. Is Jesus callous? Because, and, and this is, by the way, this rebuke is plural. It's not just intended for the man. So Jesus said to him, unless you, and that 
and, and you is actually plural for people. So unless you people, he's talking to the crowd gathered around, unless you people see signs and wonders. So he's making this statement that is broad, but he is speaking to this man. Now, is he, is he unfeeling here? Is he irritated? What gives that Jesus would respond this way to a dad who's pleading for the life of his son? It may seem mean-spirited, but in fact, the opposite is true. This was an instructive moment that Jesus was using meant to help this man see clearly. Because he wasn't just after. Jesus just didn't want to heal this man's son. He wanted to heal this man as well. The, the healing that Jesus brings to broken lives is broad and vast. He just doesn't limit it to this, this man's son. He is, he is wanting to, to have this man have a revelation as to who he is. It's why John wrote this, that these signs and wonders that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing you might find life in his name. And it is what happened when his mom came to him and said, son, there's no wine at the wedding. And Jesus said, woman, what do you, you want me to do? And he is rebuking his mother. And what he is doing at that moment is he's changing in his mother's understanding. Our relationship is not the same anymore. You can't relate to me as mother and son. You now have to relate to me as son of God. And this rebuke is meant to be the exact same thing. You are now, you are to relate to me not as the carnival miracle worker. You are to relate to me as the son of God. I want you to see more than just signs performed He says to this nobleman, I want you to see me. I want you to know who I am. And here he is instructing this desperate father that he is more than a miracle, just a carnival miracle worker. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who brings people from death to life. This was a wonderful gospel moment. Jesus was revealing the gospel, the good news to this man. He was, it was a moment of mercy. It may not appear that way, but it was a moment of mercy and loving grace, even though it came across as hard. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Again, we look forward to John 20, 31. Jesus has done this. Jesus performs miracles so that not people get excited about the miracles, but they understand what real faith is, which is knowing Christ, believing in Christ. So how does this story from 2,000 years ago have any connection to those of us who are Christians who do believe in Jesus and who do have a genuine faith? Those who don't believe in Christ are not the only people who can demonstrate a false faith. You see, this, this nobleman didn't believe in Christ. And so his faith was just in signs. It was a false faith. It wasn't faith in the Son of God. But as Christians, I think we can fall into a trap of having a false faith at times. 
And this kind of faith can creep into our lives. Legalism is the belief that we can earn God's approval by our behavior. That's what legalism is. That we can do something to make God give us favor, which earns our salvation, which earns our, our acceptance to God, which is totally wrong. False faith in a Christian acts actually in a similar way. False faith demands from God that he earn our approval by his behavior. False faith demands that. We demand answered prayer. We demand healing. We demand provision. We demand protection. We demand anything we ask from God. We expect God's behavior to act a certain way because we ask. And when he does not act that way, when we do not have an answered prayer, when we do not have something that we've asked for in protection or provision or whatever, how do we respond? We can respond by charging God as unkind. We can respond by charging God as unfair. We can respond by believing that God is not good. And we impugn God's character. This kind of faith is not faith in God. It's just faith in the behavior we expect from God. We have a God that wisely cares for us. But it's not in how he performs for us. We must desire God rather than desire something from God. Those who don't believe in God need to come to a true faith where they believe in Christ because of who he is, not what he does. Not a foxhole Christianity as we saw with the man on the cliff or we see here in this passage if you remember, if you saw this, the movie or read the book Unbroken, you remember that Louis Zamperini is a cast adrift in the Pacific Ocean for weeks on end, and he has a raft conversion. He cries out to God and says, if you rescue me, I will follow after you. And of course, he does get rescued, but does he follow after God? Not at first. Not at first. That was a false faith. That was a false trust in God. A false crying out to God. But God is beyond merciful and compassionate. And in, and in the wisdom of God, he answers prayers like that. In the wisdom of God, he loves people beyond their capacity to understand who he is. And that's what he does right here. And this is where we see true faith being created in a sense being revealed in this man's life and this is this is the nature of true faith in verse 49 Jesus rebukes him and how does this nobleman respond he responds by saying the official said to him sir come down before my child dies he takes the rebuke I think he gets the rebuke and what does he do he doesn't turn away he doesn't 
get angry at Jesus. He doesn't demand from Jesus. But he looks back at him again. And I think it's because he sees who he is. He says, please, please come down and heal my son. Now, I believe it's because this official, this nobleman, saw in Jesus the love of God. Or he wouldn't keep asking. He saw the mercy of God, or he wouldn't keep asking. And it's that same love and same mercy that we encountered when we were broken and apart from God and we only saw God at a distance and God reached down and talked to us and spoke to us and we responded because we saw the love of God. This nobleman had very little, if any, genuine faith. But even as Jesus challenged him, challenges him, his faith grows. Yes, it's out of desperation to save his child. <clears throat> but somehow, <clears throat> the rebuke does not deter him. And even where there's the smallest hint of <clears throat> excuse me, true faith, Jesus compassionately responds. I love what Jesus says here in verse 50. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Now, I don't think Jesus, he didn't go, go, your son will live. It wasn't cavalier. I think it was, I, mean, I could see Jesus putting his hands on the man's face and looking at him and saying, go, your son will live. And that man understood it at that moment. Because look how he responds. The man believed the word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He was begging him, pleading with him to come all the way to Capernaum, thinking Jesus had to be there to touch him. And Jesus speaks, and this man believes his word. That is the nature of true faith. We believe God's word. We don't question God's word. We trust God's word. The nobleman doesn't deny the charge, no, and he doesn't arrogantly demand. He just knows his cry for mercy has been heard. This nobleman is very much like, if you remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, this woman comes to Jesus in verse uh, 27, I'll read it. I'll read it to you. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out crying, Have mercy on me, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. She's a, an irritant. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. I mean, that is, that is not what you want to hear when you're crying for mercy. 
We don't, we don't give stuff to you. We don't take children's bread and give it to dogs. And the woman's response is, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. And that is what is happening here with this man. <clears throat> Just like the Syrophoenician woman, he is eating the crumbs, in a sense, that fall from the master's table. And he is experiencing, he hears the word of God and he believes. He, he knew there was nowhere else to go. There was nothing else left to do. It was either Jesus or death for his son. And oh, that we would all be in the same place that this man is. In our trust and our desperation to know Christ. John Bunyan gives us a brilliant picture of faith for the believer. He said, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would have sooner thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him. For I knew him to be my last hope. I knew him to be my last hope. The only thing Jesus gave this man was his word. He didn't go. He just gave him his word. The nature of true faith is that it believes without seeing. Look on in 51. As he was going down, so he's left Jesus. He's going down. His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, do you, under, do you see what is happening here? Jesus spoke this word at the seventh hour, which would be about one o'clock in the afternoon. This man goes away, but it isn't until the next day that he goes home. Because he meets his servants on the way of this four-hour journey back to Capernaum. And he says, when was he healed? And what did they say? Yesterday. Jesus spoke a word yesterday. And this man's faith was so genuine and so at peace that whatever business he had to attend to in Cana, he did. Because he didn't get back to Capernaum till the next day. This man's faith had grown. True faith grows because true faith is anchored in a relationship, not in a circumstance. This nobleman didn't know any news about his son, but he knew Christ. He had come to know Christ. The nobleman needed a miracle, and he came. But then the nobleman believed Jesus' word, and he left. And then the nobleman believed in Jesus. Look at Verse 53, the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And here is the, the outworking of genuine faith. He himself believed and all his household. That is why Jesus has come. Yes, in his compassion and his mercy, he heals people. But he came not to heal physically first, but to heal spiritually. To bring those who are apart from him, far from him, 
back to himself. That is the nature of true faith. So what is, what is our application? I think two, two conditions. The application is that, that we grow in faith. The application is that we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. And two conditions that help our faith grow. The first condition is simply this, hearing God's word. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith grows in our lives as we immerse ourselves in God's word. It's the soil in which faith will grow and where we learn more about who God is and, as we, and we will draw closer in his relationship to him. It's why we memorize scripture in this church. It's why we read scripture at the opening of every Sunday meeting. It's why we preach from scripture. It's why we want scripture read during worship. It's why we encourage the reading of scripture in care group. It's why we want you to be immersed in God's word. Colossians 3.16 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. It's why. Because we will grow in our faith, in our knowledge of God. And not have a false faith where we just, we just trust God for his behavior in answering our prayers. But we trust him for who he is. The second condition for faith to grow is for us to exercise the faith we already have. Kent Hughes says, each one of us has opportunities to grow in faith as we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. In those trials, if we turn to the word of God, it will speak to us. And if we believe and act upon it, we will grow in faith. We, meet, we must exercise. When I, I had knee surgery in November and I have been slowly trying to get back into exercise. And recently I joined this thing like CrossFit, which is like you, you see CrossFit competitions on television. Don't worry. I, I can't do CrossFit competitions. I'm the guy laying on the floor, panting, looking for air. And they're looking at me saying, sir, should you be here? But I am, I am doing it. I am exercising. I am getting back into shape. I'm lifting tires. I'm doing the ropes. I'm lifting weights. I'm riding the bike. I'm doing the rowing machine. I'm doing it. I'm exercising because I'm 60 and I want my body to last longer. It, it, it helps my body just as exercise helps all our bodies as Jim Cowan will now testify. <laughs> right, Jim? Yes. Our friend who is recovering from open heart surgery and he will exercise and this, this entire church will hold him accountable to exercising because we love Jim. And so our faith needs to be exercised. And let me tell you, the only time your faith gets exercised is in difficult times. It's in trial. It's in suffering. It's when you're in pain. Listen, I, ask Marilyn, I, first time at this CrossFit place, Next morning, I had trouble getting out of bed, and I was groaning. It sometimes hurts to exercise, but it's, it's what will change us. It's what will allow us to know God better. You know, theology is simply the study of God. That's what the word means. Our theology reveals what we believe about God. 
And it's when we're faced with dark nights of discouragement or despair over sick children or family members or suffering and pain from our own disease or injury or fear and anxiety we face when it's in financial situations or anguish over broken marriages or broken relationships. It's then we need God. But if we don't know him, we cannot trust him. Recently, CJ said in a message on Job, he said this, and I think it is well said. He said, it is in our darkest moment when we need our best theology. It is in our darkest moment when we need our best theology. Our best theology is what do we believe about God? What faith do we exercise towards God? That is what true faith genuinely is. It is knowing and believing God.